Welcome back to week two of a COVIDly candid conversation where we are discussing God's law, justice, and a biblical worldview. In part one, we talked a lot about current events, uh, specifically the death of George Floyd, and a lot about critical theory, as well as how that does not flow well with the just use of God's law. Today, we're going to cover uh, a little bit more. We're going to talk about uh, Black Lives Matter. We're going to talk about rioting. We're going to talk also about some problematic responses uh, that we're seeing from people within the Church of Jesus Christ, from pastors of other churches. uh, And we're also going to be talking again about how we can understand God's law. But today we're going to be talking about specifically applying God's law to issues of injustice in today's society. Absolutely. And so uh, to get us started, Steve, on something that is not at all controversial, just kind of wade in slowly. I do not ever talk about anything controversial. Never. Do Black Lives Matter? Yes, absolutely. Uh, And we can clearly make a case for that without unbiblical uh, ideology involved. And so we have to understand. And honestly, for my part, I thought in part one that it wasn't necessarily important to talk about people bearing the image of God to a great extent. But from what I've seen over the last couple of weeks, I think that actually we do have to talk about that. In the beginning, when God created everything that exists, In Genesis chapter 1, it is very clear that all human beings, men and women, equally bear the image of God. And why that is important is to understand what it is to be human. We have a purpose for our existence. Our purpose is to bear the image of God, show the image of God, and reflect the image of God to everything and everyone else in creation. The key in understanding why that is important with a statement like Black Lives Matter is an understanding that both white and black and Hispanic, you know, whatever color under the sun you want to give it, uh, everyone has the exact same purpose for being alive. We exist to bear the image of God, reflect the image of God to all creation around us. So that is a great equalizer amongst the purpose of humanity. And so, yes, black lives do matter. Now, where we run into issue is the key, and I'm going to use the the terminology that other people have used, and then I want uh, both of us to talk about why that could be problematic. The issue has been hijacked by an organization calling itself Black Lives Matter. Now, the phrase Black Lives Matter is indisputable. There's no argument. There's no qualification needed for why that matters. The statement, though, does not just mean the phrase. The statement is reflective of an organization that is anti-biblical that is sinful, that is bad. Talk to us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's what I would want to affirm when you, when you talk about that. Like, the statement Black Lives Matter is just taking at face value a true statement. Right. I want to make sure as Christians that we are understanding why people are feeling the need to say that right now. Mm-hmm. People are saying that because they have felt historically and currently that black lives are being treated like they don't matter. Yeah. So what about the people that say, well... All lives matter, Nate. 
Not just black lives. All right. I'm going to hurt some of your feelings right now. We got to stop saying that. It's not helpful. And I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender here. So give me a second. But it is not helpful when the question is, the question society is asking is, do these black lives matter? Now, you can question the motives in asking that. You can question a lot of the things surrounding that. But actually, the question of, do these people with black skin, are they created in the image of God and does their life matter? That question just needs to be an unqualified yes. And so when you respond with, but all lives matter, the problem is you're missing the point of what's being asked. Because, of course, mm -hmm. all lives matter. That's not the question. The question is, do these lives matter? Now, on the other side of that, and this is where we share some very serious concerns, there is also a vocal group of folks who want to kind of parade that if we don't use the slogan, Black Lives Matter, everywhere and always, um, our commitment to whether or not um, people of every ethnicity are created in the image of God is questioned. Like you've got to, the, this idea that you must use that slogan. And I am very concerned about using a slogan that is connected to an organization that does not intend good things for us. And that's, you know, without, we could spend a whole episode and we're not going to do that. Could you just give, but could you just yeah. give us one or two examples? So here's what needs to be understood. I think there has been a false perception created the last few weeks. We've seen this, that um, just well-meaning folks kind of were using the phrase Black Lives Matter to protest racism. And then these nefarious sources came in and hijacked that phrase. That's not the history. That phrase was created by an organization called Black Lives Matter, which in their founding documents promotes Marxism, promotes uh, pro-LGBT agenda, um, promotes the destruction of the nuclear family. And we could go on and on kind of talking about that, but it was not hijacked. Um, it was a slogan that was created to promote an organization to promote all those things. Now, Christians are in a weird position because the actual words, Black Lives Matter, are true and good, and we need to affirm them. But what I also want to say is it needs to be okay to caution Christians to associate with an organization that is so explicitly anti-Christian. But here's where I really want to land here pastorally. Mm -hmm. um, whether I want it to be or not, I think your opinion on whether or not you can can use the phrase Black Lives Matter and not support the organization, because that's what a lot of folks want to do. Um, that is a matter of personal conscience. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to bind anyone's conscience if they feel that they can use the phrase Black Lives Matter and not support the organization. But uh, there's a flip side to that, too. I don't want anyone binding my conscience that I am concerned that I should avoid the phrase Black Lives Matter as a slogan, as kind mm -hmm. of a, a mantra because I'm supporting an organization I don't want to support. Um, got to be careful about that. And now I will say this humbly. I think if I'm going to have that stance that, um, that I need to avoid that slogan as a slogan, I can say it in conversationally and make it myself clear. But if I'm going to avoid that slogan, then I need to find other ways to make clear that I do believe, um, that black folks are created in the image of God and that their lives matter. And so part of why we're doing this episode and the one previous is that we do need to speak to that issue because I think if you just say blanket, I'm never going to say that slogan because it's a bad slogan, but then you never speak to the issue. That's pretty disingenuous. So yeah. we want to speak to it. I, I think one, one of the important things in understanding in dis, in understanding the distinction of the phrase. Now, if, if you don't believe that it's nefarious as an organization, 
that's problematic too because one of the things that I think people are fooling themselves with is oh it's it's hard to find that out. No, it's it's really easy. They have core there's just like a church because this is a religion. They have core values listed out on their website and they're very upfront that they are Marxist, that they are pro LGBT, that they hate the nuclear family and that their goal is to destroy the nuclear family because they literally view the nuclear family as oppressors. So you can easily find that. The other side of it, though, is I think there's also a misconception between people who would say all lives matter, people that would say black lives matter, and even the subset of the all lives matter that would say blue lives matter, that when people say black lives matter, I do not think for the most part, unless you're organizationally aligned with black lives matter as an organization, I do not believe they are necessarily coming from a pejorative posture. I don't think it's an attacking posture. What I do think, though, is when you trumpet all lives matter or blue lives matter or any other type of lives matter, you are necessarily, though, taking a pejorative position and you are punching back against the people who are trying to point out some some disparities that are going on in the culture. And there are, of course, numbers to reflect uh, certain disparities and certain injustices that necessarily do happen to African-Americans at a rate that they do not happen to Caucasians in our country. And so we have to understand that biblically speaking, if you want to fight against the phrase itself, Black Lives Matter, you do not understand, number one, where they're coming from, but number two, a biblical ethic of loving people. I think you really struggle with that. I've seen a couple of, uh, you know, kitschy uh, people out there who who are posting things. You know, Jesus, uh, you know, when he was talking at the woman at the well, he, you know, he, he kind of engaged her with the attitude of Samaritan lives matter. And I, while Jesus didn't use that phrase, of course, I do think that that is an important moment in Jesus's life where he truly went beyond trying to understand the baggage that would come along with being a Samaritan, talking to a Jewish man, and he engaged her where she was with what she was dealing with, um, even in her personal life. But then beyond her personal life, he actually went to uh, the struggle between Jews and Samaritans to show her that she had just as much opportunity to worship Jesus Christ as everybody else. He did not use it as a platform moment for him to show, well, you're no better than Jews. And I don't think that's what most people are saying, uh, at least in the church, when they say Black Lives Matter. Is that element out there? Absolutely. But the phrase itself is a good phrase. It is a good idea. It should be helpful in forming relationships and actually engaging people with the gospel hope that can come uh, from this type of moment. Now, we've also seen uh, over the past couple of weeks, uh, in response to everything that happened with George Floyd, everything that we talked about uh, last time, we've seen protests, we've seen those protests devolve into riots, we've seen those riots uh, become encampments. We've seen those encampments take over entire, you know, districts of, of cities. And now we have one out in Seattle. And so I want to pose a question to you. Are riots okay and understandable? No. Okay. Why not? Why not? 
I think what happens there is we want, and we got into this quite a bit in part one, we absolutely need to and must affirm there is a right urgency for justice that is being expressed. And we want to affirm that as much as possible, because I think dismissing that, as you said, is not loving our neighbor. On the other hand, I've been extremely concerned that for some reason, our culture has just shifted from getting that part wrong, not affirming a need for justice to just a blanket affirmation of sin, just destroying property, rioting. Mm-hmm. I mean, rioting is not protesting. And a lot of people get that distinction, but I've also been uncomfortable and concerned with the amount of even Christian leaders that are seemingly justifying destruction of property and lawlessness. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a problem, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's a huge problem. And I've seen some people, and it's so funny, you can take one sentence from a person totally out of context and make it mean whatever you really want it to mean. Martin Luther King Jr. had the statement that, that uh, you know, I'm probably going to massacre it a little bit, but rioting or riots are basically are the voice of the unheard. That, that when you don't listen to people, it's inevitably going to lead to riots. But if you understand the statement in context, you have to understand that Martin Luther King Jr. was 100% against riots. He, he never supported rioting, nor was Martin Luther King Jr. ever a part of rioting. And I think the mayor of Richmond, who has, since he made this statement, he has made so many uh, blunders and mistakes that, that it's getting pretty ridiculous at this point. But he actually came out and said after the first night of rioting that the, the riots are despicable and two wrongs don't make a right. Now, since then, uh, he, he has joined in marching. But now what, what's interesting is seeing is, is people are saying, OK, protesting is OK. Rioting is OK. As everything goes on, it is getting harder and harder to distinguish between the two um, because it seems like those who were really seeking justice for George, George Floyd and which which is happening and that praise God that that is happening. I don't know how involved they are anymore because the riot, excuse me, the the protesting and the marches and which devolve into rioting, the encampments, you know, out in Seattle and people's attempt in other places, Asheville, North Carolina, they tried it, didn't go too well for them. But what we're seeing is this has less and less to do with Black Lives Mattering, less and less to do with justice for George Floyd, less and less to do with any reform that we might want to see where, where justice is concerned and more and more to do with political ideology and young uh, Marxist, young Antifa, because most of the time on the marches and the rioting we're seeing, it's not African-Americans doing it. It's white kids. Look at a lot of the signs and the graffiti in the protests. They have nothing to do with racism. We need to acknowledge that and right. be concerned about that. Yeah. And what's what's interesting is, is how quickly something can get hijacked. Yeah. This past Friday night, uh, and I don't think we have time to get into uh, our views on the statue itself. Uh, I don't care uh, about it coming down. The Confederacy lost. Deal with it. But um, this past Friday night during a protest, and this was very telling of the age that we're in, the actual statue itself was lit up with the uh, the BLM. But then below that, to the foundation of the statue, a rainbow flag was put all over uh, the foundation. Now, what's important about that? is that we have to admit that what we're seeing now is not a pure ideology 
of justice. This is not a pure ideology about racial disparity. It is not a pure ideology about racial reconciliation. Now we're beginning to see that the that the nefarious uh, foundation of the organization of Black Lives Matter, of the organization like Antifa, is actually showing its blasphemous head and saying, this isn't about Black Lives Mattering as a singular issue. We have to bring in everything. So if Black Lives Matter, LGBT live ma- lives have to have the exact same place as Black Lives. And so when we actually realize what's going on, we have to admit that as a church, we might not be seeing what's actually happening in society, that we might actually be taken captive by a wind of doctrine because we had a good thing going on with Black Lives Mattering, but now we're actually seeing that it's been hijacked by uh, basically pagan blasphemers who are trying to get not just an unbiblical worldview put in place, but an anti-biblical worldview put in. And so we understand two wrongs don't make a right. We understand that black lives matter. We understand how quickly people can respond in evil and wicked ways. You can have evil. If you respond with evil, you just get double evil. You never get good. But what I'm hearing uh, from many people, and even, even as a criticism on us, um, is that we should not be so quick to act like we have answers. We, you know, James chapter one, we should be slow to speak, quick to listen. You know, we, we, sh- we should, should not be so quick to actually act like we have answers. We need more empathy. Right. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. And so what you hear is, um, and even, you know, making that connection to the riots, we just need to understand right? We need to understand. Mm-hmm. We need to listen. We need to empathize. And you mentioned James one nineteen. Um, says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. But the context of that verse is all about um, the word of God. It's mm-hmm. all, all the verses preceding it, all the verses after it uh, is kind of trying to to put forth um, the reality that we do need to be slow to anger, slow to reacting inappropriately, but um, considering the word of God in our response. What does scripture say? That's what that verse is actually about. What does scripture say? How do you respond um, intelligently and with wisdom from scripture? And so what I think is happening and what we want to address is there is this false idea that if people just cared more, things would change. And the reason that I say it's a false idea is because um, people caring more isn't the problem. And I really do believe that. And I think that our our culture is in some ways raging right now because they have a false notion that there are a whole lot of people that just don't care about racism. Mm-hmm. And I do think we want to say that's that's actually not true. Yeah. Um, our culture does care about racism. The problem is it doesn't know where to go. Um, and so just caring more. So then you get this idea of empathy, like like the, the root issue is that you just need to understand what it's like more. And if we did that, we would have real solutions. And we don't want to say there's no no place for listening. Right. Of course, we should listen to people's concerns and their hurt. Absolutely. Right. That's just being a Christian. Right. We we must do that. But I would even go so far as to say I'm concerned if you haven't listened yet. 
Like yeah. these are conversations <laughs> we've been having, lots of us for more than a decade, hopefully at least for the last five years, you've been listening. I know we have listened and mm-hmm. heard very concerning stories backed up by, I would say, statistics. That expect- I mean, you, I think you and I, if we just use me and you okay. as, as, as a group, we've been talking about racial reconciliation with people of all races, all ethnicities yeah. for 10 years. Yeah. And so, so, we, so we, we, we've spent a long time <laughs> listening about this so issue. So part of what I want to say is if you're still listening, what's the deal? Yeah, like we got it. I feel like there is a there is a patronizing behind this idea that you just need to listen. Patronizing on both sides. From the left, I think they're patronizing us when they say you just need to listen because they actually know what their solutions are and they know we're not going to like them because their solutions are socialism. Yeah. There's also patronizing on the right though, and what I mean by that is um, a lot of conservative Christians um, who are just jumping to say, well, we just need to listen and. The patronizing behind that is they don't know what to do and they don't know where to go for solutions. So they're just saying, listen, listen, listen. And what we're trying to say here is, yes, we, of course, listen and empathize, acknowledge there is a real justice issue, which I want to acknowledge that. But then say, where does the word of God take us for a solution? Because empathy is not a solution. Right. I was was listening uh, last week. To a church planting pastor in Georgia, works for the North American Mission Board. His name's Dahadi Lewis. I was listening to him last week, and I, and I really found it, what he had to say interesting, because he actually said exactly what we just said. Uh, he said that the calls to listen. What else do we have to listen to? It's time to act, and so we get double messages. It's like it's like the nineteen eighty four double speak from George Orwell. Where someone will say, "Be quick to listen," uh, and and then another guy will say, "Act," and we want to act like they're both true at the exact same time. And I think that's what is confusing for people. I think Dahadi was really on to something when he said, "Now's the time to act." What else is there to listen to? We know what we're supposed to do. I have a suspicion, uh, and it's because uh, the people that have been saying, you know, James one nineteen over and over and over again. I think it is just their way of saying, shut up if your message is different than my message. Because they're not listening. They just say, they're basically saying, your message is obviously wrong. You need to listen to me. And that is a gross misuse of God's word. That is a terrible way to use the Bible. If you're trying to use the Bible and take a text so out of context, as to say, just because, and, and they're assuming that the audience they're talking to has a message that they disagree with. Just because you're going to disagree with someone does not mean that they should not have just as much right as you have to form an action plan for what's going on. Now, when Dahadi says that we should actually get to action, what he's actually doing is he is applying James 1.19, in a really good context. When it says, don't be quick to get angry, he's saying, we have a decisive plan. This isn't about being angry. We have something to do. And I think what Dahadi's talking about is what's actually going on right now, is we have so emasculated so many well-meaning, and I'm going to call it right-wing Christians, that they're afraid to do or say anything because so many young Restless, 
used to be reformed, but now they're playing with a little bit of heresy on the side, that they are afraid that their dad is going to give talking points to Fox News. And I think so many guys that are getting into ministry right now, they have such a deep father wound that they that they sit around mocking people who get their talking points from Fox News, but their answer isn't to get their talking points uh, from the Bible. They're just getting their talking points from CNN and MSNBC. Well, why is that superior? Now, we're dealing with a real issue, and, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. I want to deal with this issue of empathy because they want us to have empathy above all so long as it agrees with them. But the key is empathy is a problematic notion. It rules the day right now because transparency is everyone's goal, but no one has a plan on the other side of transparency. Empathy is a modern construct. Um, if you have an NIV Bible, Hebrews 4.16 is mistranslated. Instead of, it says that, um, you know, we have a high priest who can empathize with us, is how the NIV translates it. The Greek word is, is sympathizo. Yeah. It's sympathy. Uh, and so the NIV is mistranslated. The ESV, the NASB, a lot of other translations have it right. Jesus does not empathize with us. He sympathizes with us. And what's fascinating, um, and um, a college professor from Bethlehem College, uh, his name's Joe Rigney. He's done a lot of work recently on this issue with empathy. And, and it's fascinating the way that he, he points out through good, solid research, just the etymology of the word and the fact that it is a modern construct that doesn't even have a widely agreed upon definition. And that's important. Because when you have a term that doesn't have a widely agreed upon definition, then you're going to have a ton of people defining it different ways. Is empathy a good thing? Well, it's a good thing if by empathy, you mean seeking to understand a person in light of who they are, what they've dealt with, and what they are dealing with in reaction to it right now. But if that's your entire plan, you are never going to help anyone. Empathy is a flawed strategy because it does not go beyond suffering with someone. Um, actually, sympathy literally means suffer with. Empathy goes beyond suffer with and means suffer in. And so there's a difference between sympathy and empathy, and that's why Hebrews 4.16 is so important, because Jesus does not suffer in, he suffers with. And that's important because it detaches from the other person. If you go in with another person, then neither one of you have any hope. You're both going to fall. A great example of this is the issue that we thought, I was raised in the 1980s, and we thought this was going to be a much bigger deal than it ever turned out to be, quicksand. Uh, every movie had people in quicksand and we all thought uh, it was going to be a big deal to this day. I've still never encountered quicksand, but if you have someone in quicksand and you want to help them and your way of helping them is to jump headlong into quicksand with them, the only thing that you are going to accomplish is, is you're both going to sink. A smart person would not empathize with someone in quicksand. Quicksand. A good strategy is to sympathize with someone in quicksand. Maybe you would put one leg in while you grab the person, but you're going to leave your other leg on solid 
footing so that you can pull them out. And right now, the problem with empathy is people are functionally saying you can't have a good plan for getting out of the quicksand until you jump into it. Right. And see from the perspective of the person in the quicksand how they're seeing things when actually the opposite is true. Right. It's absolute. It's absolute foolishness because it removes any hope of change. And I think as a society, we have let this creep into the church where we believe that there is something more righteous about sitting alongside someone and their suffering just continuing on and on with no vision for healing, no vision for oftentimes when someone is suffering, it's because they need repentance in their lives. Let's be honest about that. Uh, no ho- no uh, hope for the person to ever become emotionally healthy. We, as people, have become people who want others to be codependent on us. And when you empathize with someone, you very quickly can create a codependent person. If you will understand, and as a society, we put empathy up here. We put sympathy down here. Empathy is important, but then very quickly, the strategy of sympathy has to supersede your strategy of empathy. You have to have a strategy of sympathy because that is the strategy of Jesus Christ. He walked among us fully man, but guess what? He also had one foot in his deity. He was fully God. And so Jesus was capable of sympathizing with us to the extent of the cross, then to the extent of the resurrection in his deity, so that he could pull us out of, let's just call it the cosmic quicksand of sin. And so with issues like this, we have to understand that sympathy is the goal. Empathy can help you understand why someone is doing something wrong in the case of rioting or even right in the case of peaceful protest. But empathy cannot hope to help anyone. We must sympathize with them. And here's why, very quickly, we need to be better at sympathy. We need to be better at sympathy because we have a solid footing to stand on. And I think that as a Christian culture, that's what we're losing. We have the solid footing of the word of God to keep our feet on, to pull people in a suffering culture towards so that they can understand what the righteousness of God is and have it applied to their lives. Empathy can't do that. Empathy is completely disarmed where it comes to actually bringing anyone into the law of God. Ultimately, this is a question of where do we go for truth? Mm -hmm. And if we're only stuck in empathy, there's no place outside of ourselves to find truth. And so even the culture is saying, you're going to ultimately find truth by entering into suffering and seeing what it's like. But there's no truth there. Sympathy is saying, I see the pain, I understand it, but here's how we can apply truth. And as Christians, we know truth is the word of God. And it's it's very, empathy can become very prideful because you can take empathy to the extent where you can convince yourself that you have the ability to understand where everyone is coming from, what everyone is dealing with, you can put yourself in the shoes of other people. No, you can't. You need to have the humility oftentimes to admit that sounds terrible. I don't know what that must feel like. And here's where I find my hope, though, when I'm suffering, when I am struggling. Just caring more 
is the trumpet that you play when you don't believe in repentance, when you don't believe in hope, when you don't believe people can change. But the gospel means people can change. Now, that leads to what I think the hope of empathy or the false hope of empathy has led a lot of well-meaning, I think, I don't want to demonize anyone, well-meaning pastors to strip hope away from the gospel. Because what I've seen, and I actually saw it this morning, is pastors who are saying, and I don't know if they mean to say this, but that the gospel isn't sufficient to deal with racism. The gospel isn't sufficient to deal with injustice. The gospel isn't sufficient to cure the ills of our society. Now, what they will say is, oh, you want me to just preach the gospel? It's not time to preach the gospel. It's time to do something. I think that goes to your very definition of the gospel. And what a lot of pastors don't understand is, is that if they're well-meaning, then they will seek to apply the gospel to each and every circumstance. There's a false dichotomy being created between action and preaching the gospel. That if you are a pastor, so that means that you are mature enough to be entrusted to shepherd the flock of God, you should be smart enough, you should be understanding enough, you should be authoritative enough, and you should know the Word of God enough to understand that action is the gospel. There is gospel imperatives, there are gospel declaratives. Declaring the gospel is one thing, but the imperatives of the gospel is what gets you going. So if you create this false dichotomy where you're like, this is not the time to preach the gospel, well, you've just tried to neuter the gospel. You've just tried to totally emasculate the gospel. And when you emasculate the gospel, you, even if by accident, are telling sometimes immature Christians that the gospel isn't enough, that the gospel can't address this issue. And once you've done that, well, you've entered into a field where Jesus cannot be the hope that you plug into or some type of action. And here's where the church gets pulled into foolishness and heresy, like intersectionality, like critical theory. And you can put any any words you want to between critical and theory, whether it's critical race theory or whether, whether it's anything else that would probably offend people that I'm about to say. But you're going to get sucked into that when you tell your church, this is not a time for the gospel. Uh, you know, there's a theologian by the name of Fleming Rutledge who uh, wrote a great book on the resurrection and actually made the statement that for right now, we need to stop talking about the hope of the resurrection. That is the most anti-biblical thing I have ever heard. That is not something you would ever hear Jesus Christ say. That is not something that the apostles would ever be acquainted with because we as Christian leaders are actually inventing a paradigm where we think that we have the market cornered on suffering. We think that we have the market cornered on injustice. Well, that is the most naive view of history that you've ever seen. The entire New Testament was written under the boot of Roman oppression. And so to pretend that the guys that went throughout the Roman Empire trumpeting the hope of the resurrection, read 1 Corinthians 15, of first importance is what Paul said. 
to pretend that they didn't know what injustice was all about, to pretend that they didn't know what oppression was all about is so foolish to where if you're actually telling your people uh, now is not a time for the gospel, now is not a time for the resurrection, then you, sh- you should quite literally resign from being a pastor. That That's foolish. It's unhelpful. It's going to do the opposite of making disciples. And it is an attack on gospel sufficiency because we are so foolish as to think that the gospel does not directly uh, influence any of these issues. So last time in part one, we talked about how a full understanding of the gospel will actually lead to you being able to apply all of God's word, Mm -hmm. including God's law, to modern society and actually be able to have some solutions to what folks are rightly um, crying out for. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll actually have, have some solutions when you understand that the gospel um, empowers us to, to fully live out all that God has commanded in his scripture. And so right. I think it'd be very helpful if we talked about, okay, how do we then apply God's law today? Because yeah. I think a lot of folks don't have categories for that. And when right. they hear us say God's law, they think that we might be talking about just all 632 laws in the Old Testament were going back to Yeah, they they think that we need to start, you know, uh, bringing in the the heifers and and the sacrificial system and the priests. What do you mean when you say God's law? Well, first, we have to understand, and I think I can do this quickly, most theology developed since World War II has been terrible. Um, It's it's been awful. Uh, Most theology between 1945 and the early 80s was developed to try to insert a category that is different uh, where the Old Testament is concerned to where we treat certain things of the Old Testament. Well, that's for Israel uh, in the future. That was for Israel in the past. And the church is just a stopgap in between God's plan for Israel. Uh, There's no biblical category for that. You won't find that anywhere in the scriptures. It doesn't exist. God does not have a double standard between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we looked at a couple of verses last week that really showed God's word endures forever. God's law endures forever. Jesus Christ himself said he's not come to abolish the law. He's come to fulfill the law. Not a jot or a tittle will pass away. And so what we have to understand is that when we're talking about the law of God, the New Testament, if we just look at the teachings of the New Testament alone, it assumes the continued validity of God's law. Now, what we have to understand, though, is that that has to be filtered through the New Testament. Our understanding of the law has to be filtered through what God has to say through the New Testament. And so there is both continuity and discontinuity between the way that the New Testament treats the law of God. But there's a lot of continuity. Law in the New Testament is treated not as a uniquely mosaic thing. It is treated universally and it is treated as an obligation for absolutely everyone. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, it's we're told that the law reflects the character of God. If you read through the book of Romans over and over and over again, Paul says, is the problem the law? By no means. You don't say meganoito, which that was the strongest phrase For no. In other words, it's not even on the roadmap of possibilities. The New Testament treats the law as something that declares to us the character of God. And so that that can cause a problem if you think 
that the moral notion or the moral implications of the law of the Old Testament are not for New Testament Christians, you actually have to get yourself into a place where you would say, then the character of God has changed. You know, that something happened between Malachi and Matthew where God did a do-over, and that is not the case at all. So, when you look at God's character, the book of Hebrews tells us that he's unchanging, that God is who he is, and he's not going to change. He's never going to change. But then if you look at places like Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 10, Jesus trumpets those exact same ideals in Matthew 22. He trumpets those ideals throughout the Sermon on the Mount. The law applies to every area of life, and the New Testament makes that statement over and over again to where both the Old Testament and the New Testament make the same category. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says he doesn't just want blind obedience. He wants the heart of Israel. Deuteronomy 10, he's going to circumcise their hearts. Well, Matthew 5 and Matthew 22, Jesus says the exact same thing. And so the motivation for keeping the law, where does that come from? Because we treat the Old Testament so many times as if it's just this blind behavior modification. That was never God's intention for the law. God intended for the law to be something that motivated us to seek who he is. But also, throughout the Old Testament, quickly, God's law is not just the standard for Israel. And I think that is something that is so misunderstood about the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 and 8, God tells Israel that they will be the light of the nations. By what? obedience to the law. And when you say that, when you couple that with, okay, the law reflects the character of God. God was after Israel's heart. God then tells Israel, when you obey the law, you're reflecting my character. You're going to be a light to the nations. He's telling them, this is the standard for righteousness for my people for all time, not just Jews. Something weird that has somehow work its way in there. Because yeah, that verse says the nations around Israel are going to look at Israel and see how great is God yeah. that he gave them such good yeah. laws. And somehow we've gotten this notion that we can understand some basic morality from the Old Testament, but it has nothing to say to how a, a good and righteous government should be set up. When that doesn't, um, that doesn't make any sense absolutely. in that context. Right. So I think we have to start saying, okay, it's not just morality we get. We actually have some very clear guidelines for how society should. Oh, yeah. Uh, even uh, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith literally says that the general principles of justice continue from the moral law. That's the value of the law today. There's no doubt that we are not Israel. Uh, the Bible is clear about that in the New Testament. But what the New Testament does is, is it brings over the principles of the moral law into our day for Christians and tells us to follow them. Uh, yeah. So here's a question for you, though, okay. just to kind of get us rolling. So then, in and we can, you can go back to other things, too, but <laughs> just thinking, thinking this through, because um, then you're going to get into what are the different uses of the law. And yeah. it is a reformed tradition right. that, that one of the uses of the law is absolutely to inform civil society. And so I think most people understand we use the law to understand morality. Like there's a moral thing to understand, but also to inform civil society. And so then okay. here's, I think, posing this question will help us get, get at the question. Um, so 
Leviticus 6. Okay. All right. Um, two through five. It says, just I'm going to read the whole thing, but summarizing. It said, if you steal um, from someone, the, the punishment for stealing is to be restitution. Okay. Would it then make sense in today's society for, we understand stealing is wrong. Is it okay then to punish stealing by putting someone in jail for years and years and years? No. That is unjust. How do you get that from those verses? Uh, because that that is that is not restitution, right. uh, and, and that's that's the interesting thing about the way people view the law. Um, and I, I want to come back. So remind me, yeah. I want to come back to the discontinuity piece. So what when when we say because I will make a clear statement to anybody that will listen to me: Are Christians bound to the law? Yes, the whole thing. There is no part of the law that has been abolished for modern man. The whole thing still applies justly today. But when we talk about disparity, when we look at the black community, and we cannot be so audacious as to say that there is no disparity going on where justice is concerned in the black community, and prison reform does need to be had. You say, oh, Steve, that's a left talking point. No, that's a Bible talking point. That's that's. We just use that one example that you just made in the Old Testament. If you stole from someone, you were not put into prison for years and years. There were two things that could happen to you. If you had the financial means to repay that person with interest what you stole from them, that is sufficient. That is justice. You have learned from from your crime. That that was the hope of the Old Testament. But here's the deal. And we we need to be honest about this. And and I'm honest about my dealings where the Old Testament is concerned. If you stole from someone, regardless of why, even if you're Robin Hood, and you did not have the financial means to repay that person, that is what indentured servitude was. You then became that person's slave until you worked on off your debt to that person, or the year of Jubilee came seven years after your imprisonment. And so that is imprisonment. And so we have to understand when we talk about prison, that God's law tells us exactly what someone should be sentenced to with any and every crime that they are uh, found guilty of by two or three witnesses or by sufficient evidence. And so our dealings with stealing where restitution never happens is completely unjust. Where somebody just goes and and uh, lives in a jail or a prison for a period of time and then it's just, it's not. Uh, many times that person never needs uh, to go to prison. And we have a laundry list of uh, lawful sentences that people need to be sentenced to where in our culture, uh, sentences that are unjust are pronounced upon them. We have people in our culture who get a speeding ticket and they don't have the means to repay that speeding ticket. And so the interest that happens on that loan, because our court system unjustly puts them into what it, what amounts to nothing more than a payday loan scam, the interest rates are so high that that person, and this is, this is, inflicting injustice on low-income parts of our society and our culture where people never have hope to ever get their license again. So when we see on the cop shows 
Somebody gets pulled over and the cop's like, you have a suspended license. You're not allowed to be driving. And so a lot of times they'll either A, lead them away in handcuffs or B, let them go. We don't ask, why do so many people have suspended licenses? Well, you know, you can eventually, if you do not have the financial means to pay the government, you can get your license suspended uh, for just a normal everyday parking ticket. That's not just. Uh, There needs to be a way that that can be worked off so that that person can be brought back to a reconciled place where the government is concerned. But what we just keep doing is kicking the can down the road so people lose their jobs, people lose their cars, people lose their houses, because we do not have a just way of of doing this. What we ultimately have to get to a point where we recognize is that God's law in the Old Testament, where he was, he was telling Israel, this is how you will bring me honor by setting up your society. It was not arbitrary. No. Like he, this was the, the most just way to treat people with dignity. And we just don't trust that, I think. Mm-hmm. And so we, we get ourselves in a bad place where, yeah, I mean, we are essentially having what amounts to modern day slavery yeah. with our prison system. Not in every case, because yeah. there are some crimes in the Old Testament where that kind of thing would be appropriate. And well, what's fascinating is people will say, oh, Steve, you can't apply the law of God to a unchristian society. And that's that's the argument that uh, that many people will make. Even the ERLC will make make that. And that that is the same people will then tell me that uh, when it comes to uh, quarantine, I have to follow Romans 13. Well, Romans 13, 4 actually calls the civil magistrate a servant of God. Okay, if you exegete what that literally means, Romans 13 does not as much bring me under uh, governmental authority as much as it does bring governmental authority under God, especially where the sword is concerned. And in Romans 13, 4, when he says the civil magistrate is a servant of God, well, what would the servant of God do? The servant of God would look to God's standard of justice. If you really, if you notice throughout the New Testament, we do not have a different standard of justice given to us other than the law. People will say, we're not under the Old Testament law. We're under the law of Christ. Yeah. Paul said that over and over again. What do you think Paul meant by the law of Christ? Paul meant the Old Testament law. Uh, Look at what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, uh, starting in verse 8. He says, now we know that the law is good. Ah, Think about that. The law is good. If one uses it lawfully, and many people will say, oh, there you go. I'm going to explain what that means in a minute. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Fascinating that Paul tells a pastor, the law is for Secular people. Who do, you, who do you think the lawless and disobedient people are? Those aren't followers of Christ. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so Paul mixes two what in modern day culture, Christi- excuse me, cultural Christianity, would say, the gospel's over here, the law's over here. Paul enjoins them. And he says, they are one and the same. And so we need to first, I want to talk about the three uses of the law. First, the law is political. The law is political. 
Secondly, the law is a teacher. And thirdly, the law is a rule of life. Now, the reformers would have said the law is political, the law is pedagogic, and the law is didactic. But so I just kind of dumbed it down for us a little bit. Now, what does the second and the third one mean? The second one means the law leads you to Christ. That's why Paul finishes and he says that it is the gospel of the glory of God. The hope of the law, and this is spelled out in the book of Galatians, is to be your schoolmaster to lead you to your understanding that you are hopeless without Christ, but then it is also the rule of life for believers. So it leads you to Christ, and then the law leads you in Christ. And I think when we deal with individuals, we get that. That first one is what's currently causing us a lot of problems. Politically speaking, Christians need to understand that until we submit to the law of God where politics are concerned, we will continue to be divided and we will continue to be using nothing more than subjective ideals that are dictated by culture. I mean, could you imagine that we have a society right now, especially within the church, that is arguing over what it means to be pro-life? That, uh, you know, that, that oh, if you're, if you're just against abortion, that's not enough. You know, I'm whole life. Right. And that's just, that's just one of the dumbest things I have ever heard in my life because you're applying it down the road to whatever issue you want to apply it to because all that you have when you say whole life is subjective standards. Pro-life was based on objective standards, but it wasn't enough. We've got to make it subjective to point to anything that we want. But what the law of God does is it provides an external standard of justice, which can always be applied within the civil sphere. I pointed out Romans 13, 4, the civil magistrate is the servant of God. So when it comes to police, do you want police reform? Do you want to see the police reformed? then you will actually look to the civil magistrate, which in Romans 13 would include actual police officers, not just the magistrate at the courthouse. It is the police officer as well. And you will point out the law of God where lawbreakers are concerned, where sentences are concerned. And I think this is exactly what Carl F.H. Henry was talking about. He wrote a wonderful book uh, that that many people nowadays haven't read. Uh, it's called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalist, basically. And what he writes about in this book is that fundamentalism was this amazing idea. I am very vocal with people. It's not very popular, and I get criticized for it all the time, but I consider myself to be a fundamentalist, all right? And what Carl F.H. Henry did is fundamentalism in the 1940s and 1950s really became a separatist movement in which they lost their hope for engaging society and became separationists who wanted to be away from society and have nothing to do with society because they didn't want to stain the sin of society on themselves. Carl F.H. Henry, who was a fundamentalist, came out, wrote this wonderful book where he points out, and it's a very short book, he points out in every chapter why the tenets of fundamentalism, the sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, everything that the law of God is all about, why we need to engage the culture with it in hopes that we will reform the culture with it, because both Old Testament and New Testament give us that hope. And this is, I would say, this is almost our attempt to do exactly what Carl F.H. Henry wanted to do. Now, the difference is, is that Carl F.H. Henry would have applied it to education, but a lot of our people are afraid to do that. Now, 
when we talk about this, we have to not fail to see God's law as instructing us on how to operate as an external discipline within society. We have to admit that when God's law is ignored, society as a whole suffers. So how do you get society to stop suffering? Tell them the truth. <laughs> exactly. Right? You tell them the truth of God's law. You begin to apply God's law to every single thing. Here's how a New Testament scholar named Donald Guthrie put it. He said, the approach of the law in general in the New Testament is intricately bound up with the Mosaic law, which makes extensive provision for social justice. The importance of this evidence of the sanctity of the law is that it provides a sound basis for social action. And what's so helpful with that statement by Donald Guthrie is that it puts us in a place because a lot of people right now, I mean, they're so antsy to do something. They're lighting their hair on fire. I got to say something. I got to do something. I got to be a part of something. And they don't know what to do. Here's the deal. Educate yourself on God's law. Begin applying the principles of God's law where your politics are concerned. God's law politically retrains society. Uh, Greg Bonson said that. And it is such an important element for us to understand where life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, where all of the American ideals that were originally there with all of the problems America had in its construction, in its architecture, with all of the issues that it had, the one ideal that they really tried to get right, even though they really picked and chose what fit their category, was that they did look to the law of God in order to, to say what a just society is. The church needs to go one step further. We need to engage society. We need to engage politics. We need to engage society as a whole with justice. But the only place we can find justice is in the law of God. I think it would be helpful if, um, with the time we have left, if we just walk through, I mean, we hit one on the restitution concept, but if we just mm -hmm. walk through some of these biblical concepts and just briefly, because I think as a question I got from the part one is, okay. okay, we're talking about a lot of God, but let's give some examples to help us understand, like, what kind of things are we talking about here? So I think that would be helpful. Well, it's just, you know, I just want, I would start with talking about when we're talking about George Floyd. And I, I think, I don't think there was any confusion last time on where I stand on capital punishment. <laughs> I don't think it was any stand because, and people will say, how can you be so sure? And my response is because the law of God is so clear. Uh, and, and we Leviticus chapter 24, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever, and, but the law goes further, right? What happens if your neighbor kills your dog? Well, verse 18, whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good. Life for life. So you're going to repay me. Uh, you know, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury has given a person shall be given to him. There has to be, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2 makes this very clear. There has to be an ideal for just retribution to be made. Now, there was in the Old Testament this idea that if somebody, and basically what the end of that one's saying, if somebody punches you in the face, you're not going to be held accountable for punching them in the face. 
But if someone injured you to the point where you couldn't take care of your family in the Old Testament, the just retribution for that was that the person who injured you was responsible for taking care of you and your entire family until you can take care of yourself. That is just retribution. And we have lost that concept in society. One thing you can't miss if you study Old Testament law is how concerned God is with fairness Mm -hmm. and with with just justice in terms of appropriate punishments. And you can look and see in our society how much we've gotten off track on either side. Sometimes our society punishes someone way too much for something. And that has um, bad effects on down the line. It has bad effects not just on the person, but it has effects on children. And it has effects on their children. We will have generational suffering because of unequal treatment under the law. And then sometimes our society doesn't punish someone enough. I can think of one example uh, from Old Testament law is rape. Yeah. Our society does not punish rape anywhere near what God no. says it should be punished. And that has effects on down the line. Yeah, we should we should be very honest. If if a man rapes a woman or, you know, the other way around, if an adult rapes a child in the law of God, that person can be found guilty. Due process and guilt brings a death sentence. Yeah, and think of how many people would have been protected Absolutely. in our society if we followed. But in our society, we treat child molesters. We try to reform them. That is, and, and if, if we're going to talk about racial injustice, we have to talk about legal injustice. If you are a child molester, you have you have killed the life of someone, according to God. You have taken something that is so precious that the only just penalty under God's law is execution for you. And you touched on something else there too that I want to highlight is God's law does have all kinds of um, safeguards for yeah. false accusations and for establishing something. Oh, it, um, in the Old Testament, uh, it, w- it was a, a righteously capitalistic society. Uh, you know, it was not socialistic in any way. And, but God, in his infinite wisdom, foresaw people trying to pervert capitalism. Deuteronomy 25, 13, you shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a, and a small. What was this? This was when you try to trick someone in business, all right? And it's having two kinds of weights. What that means is, is that you have one that shows the right weight, but then you sneak the other one in and you try to get a couple more dollars for yourself uh, by weighing something out. There are Old Testament provisions against that. There is restitution that has to be made when you uh, break such a law. Yep. And, and, you know, the law of God actually takes care of uh, outsiders. So if you want to talk, how should, how should we care for immigrants? Well, uh, the law of God, first, we have to understand Romans 13 does put immigration policy in the hands of the government. But how should the church treat immigrants? immigrants? Well, in Exodus chapter 22, it tells us, you, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. One of the greatest examples of people who get taken advantage of in our culture are widows and fatherless children. It's amazing that thousands of years ago, God's law had provision for both, that if you took advantage of any of them, then you would have to pay restitution. Yep. God's law 
talks about things people might not even expect property rights yeah. like the that we have a right to own our property and De- um, deuteronomy 19 direct contradiction to socialism now, you shall not move your neighbor's landmark which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the lord your god is giving you to possess in other words you can't take property from people once it belongs to them major concern happening right now if you want to really tie things to um, police reform and uh, the very understandable frustration that those who are tasked with upholding the law are being abusive in certain cases. And I do want to say, but not every case. Hasn't it? I am personally frustrated by the last few weeks of we're trying to acknowledge a very real injustice that appears to have been done. And now there seems to be a narrative that all cops are bad. Uh, that that isn't that's unjust. Um, you know, you and I know police officers. We know many police officers within the church, outside of the church. Godly men, good men, love the Lord, love justice, and they are not mistreating people. I would say the overwhelming, and I'm going to use language like that because I think we can go really wrong on that side. The overwhelming majority of police officers are wonderful people who are the instrument of God to bring justice to the society, and that's what they are doing. We need to be able to recognize and affirm that, and yet also see, though, that God's law has provisions in place for dealing with yeah. what is also a reality, corrupt officials. Right. Um, Deuteronomy sixteen nineteen says, You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eye of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. It's pretty, pretty clear cut. Uh, you know, if you, are, if you are caught as a police officer in corruption, The answer is you're, number one, not a police officer tomorrow, and you have to pay restitution for your corruption. So what is causing police officers who are corrupt to not be fired? Wow. Thank you so much for asking me such an uncontroversial question, Nate. I really appreciate that. But I'll be honest, police unions. Uh, The the problem is not police officers. The problem is always politics. The problem is, is that we have a system in place where public officials accept bribes in the form of union dues. And so they, through their union dues, will take a police officer who does a bad thing and will prevent him from getting fired for years. And so you will have police officers who are not good at their job, who, and that's that's the minority of police officers. I want to be clear, that is the minority of police officers. But the union will fight so that that one bad cop will give 99 good cops a bad name so they will prevent him from being fired. Uh, police unions are not just in our society. Uh, we've got to move away from this idea. And I think that is why some people want to pervert the message here, and they're using things like defund the police and all these catchy phrases that ultimately uh, are meaningless and would actually bring a great deal of injustice in our society when they don't want to deal with the real problem. The symptoms lead you to the problem. Don't treat the symptoms, treat what the symptoms point out. All of the symptoms, especially where Minnesota is concerned, point to the fact that even the police officer there, he had multiple abuse claims and none of them ever dealt with. Why? Police unions. 
And so in our society, if we want to have reform, we have to start with the issue of public sector unions. And you can take that as far as you want to. Absolutely. And we don't have to read all the verses, but just we need we're trying to start educating. And right. so educate yourself to know. And I won't read it all, but Deuteronomy 17 talks about government officials and they're held to a higher standard and they should not be um, held to a lower standard. Right. They're actually held to a higher standard. Um, it actually talks about government officials are not allowed to enrich themselves right. with their position. Right. And so. Yeah, a lot of the issues that have now happened down the line would be completely, you know, taken care of if we would listen to God's law on this. Yeah. Um, but there's no, there's no category for those who are supposed to be um, it, taking care of the people in terms of government, uh, you know, police officers, government officials of any kind. There's no category for them setting up these unions where they protect themselves at the expense of the people. That applies to teachers unions, too. Right. And then I'll, and I'll be honest, and we're, we've run out of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're probably going to talk about the law in a, in a later, later day. Um, but the key for Christians is you can fight for change all you want to, but unless you have a standard of righteousness that is objective, that is unchanging, that is guaranteed to be just, you will, you will not have a goal to fight for, nor will you have a standard to give others. And so in our protesting, make sure you're protesting with God's law. Make sure you're not just lighting your hair on fire in anger. Make sure that you're not just saying statements that are ultimately meaningless. We need change. What kind? <laughs> what would you say to this question then? People aren't going to want to implement God's law. So what's the point of us saying what the truth is? The point is that God will win. Um, when we're talking about the law, we're ultimately talking about the issue of theonomy. And, I, and I'll break more of that down in one place or another. But it's very simple. Theos, God. Namos, law. Theonomy, God's law. Everyone's a theonomist. It's just an issue of timing. Some people think God's law is for later. I say it's for later. And it's for right now. The gospel is true. Therefore, we will win. If you do not believe that fighting for culture to apply the law of God to modern society, then you are emasculating the gospel. That is an unjust standard. There is no other object of hope in this world. Yeah, they might not do it right now. But ultimately, they will. Ultimately, we will win. Christians are called to be a peculiar people in an unbelieving society. But let our peculiarities not just be that we don't listen to music that's as good as everybody else. Our peculiarity needs to be that in a society that's crying out for justice, we're actually pointing them to justice. Even if they don't want it, they have to admit it's there. The problem is we've emasculated the gospel and ripped the law away from it. Here would be the encouragement that I would want to give our people. No scripture. No, mm -hmm. when, when we are seeing societal problems, trust scripture enough to go to it and actually ask the questions, okay, what policies could be implemented based on the truth of scripture that would alleviate pain? So dig into that, know that, know that there are so many answers we could do episode after episode of this. Mm -hmm. But, and this is really, I think, crucial though. 
that's good to know God's truth and we need to be people of that. But that's not our hope. Like even you could know all the truth and implement policy. I still want to circle back around pastorally and say our hope is in the gospel and in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you could implement every policy from scripture and without changed hearts in Jesus, it doesn't matter. And we, we can't let that not be our main number one focus. Right. But the big key is when you implement the law, you will get Jesus. You will always get to Jesus because God's word will never return void. It will always lead you to Jesus Christ. Here's what I want to do in two weeks. I want to do a short episode. And I only want to talk about one issue in that episode. I want to talk about the discontinuity of the law. I want to explain what is the difference between the law of the Old Testament and the law of the New Testament. How can we justly apply it today? Because I think a lot of people are really confused because they do they see them as completely separate entities. And I want to explain uh, why they're the same. But we've run out of time. I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. For our part two of a COVIDly candid conversation. This is not going away. It won't be a COVIDly candid conversation next time, but it will be a converged conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We love you. We're praying for you, and we can't wait to see you again.